Welcome. This is Environment and Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. I'm Huma Gupta. And I'm Camille Cole. Today, we will be speaking with Aaron Jakes, Assistant Professor of History and Co-Director of Capitalism Studies at the New School, about his forthcoming book, Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism, and the Crises of Capitalism. Welcome, Aaron, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Oman. Thanks, Camille. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, so I just want to dive right in. I, I want to start with this really powerful quote in your book from 1910 by the socialist writer Theodore Rothstein. He wrote, Just as the geese at Strasbourg are fed and fattened until they turn all into liver, so has Egypt been fed by irrigation in order that it may all turn into cotton. It's such a disturbing yet fitting image, but I like how examples like this in your book offer a new interpretation of the late 19th century British occupation of Egypt. Can you talk to us about the book and particularly how it understands the relationship between the history of capitalism and Egypt's occupation as a social and an ecological process? Sure. So the first thing to say is that that incredible Rothstein quote, which appears really right at the beginning of the book, is actually there as a way of signaling right at the outset that the common focus on the history of cotton cultivation in Egypt is both necessary to our understanding of the history of capitalism and also incomplete. So the project really started as an environmental history of cotton cultivation. That was how I understood it 10 or 12 years ago when I got going. And when I started graduate school, I was struck by the fact that the relatively rich history of what Roger Owen had called cotton in the Egyptian economy had given us a powerful framework for thinking about Egypt's subordinate status in the steep hierarchies of global capitalism and about some of the complex implications of cotton cultivation for the people actually involved in performing the labor to grow it. So I'm thinking here about the work of Egyptian historians like Raouf Abbas, Asama Dessoui, Ali Barakat. And Anglophone scholars like Roger Owen, Judith Tucker, Robert Tignor, Helen Rivlin, Alan Richards. All of that work, as I read it, was produced in response to a set of urgent political and intellectual concerns. But the results had relatively little to tell us about the ecological implications of turning so much land into a cotton plantation or about what those transformations actually meant for the people working the land. So I had developed an interest in environmental history and environmental politics when I was in college. And I started out thinking that I was going to write an environmental history of cotton cultivation. So I was interested in questions about the sorts of infrastructural transformation that were necessary, about the forms of science and environmental knowledge that were produced around the cotton crop, and about the, the kind of comparative field of thought that was created by the existence of cotton zones all over the world. And so I, I really started out being kind of interested in thinking about writing a connected history of India and Egypt through the lens of cotton. And the problem was that once I started even the most preliminary research, I realized that I'd been working with both a very narrow conception of what the history of capitalism in Egypt actually looked like and of what, what counted as environmental history. Hmm. Um, and so through much of graduate school, I used to use this phrase methodological cotton-headedness as a kind of shorthand for this problem. So by this, I meant both a tendency to reduce questions about the interests of capital or the different kinds of enterprise through which capital accumulation was taking place to the question of cotton alone, 
and the ways in which framings of the history of cotton cultivation shaped the way all sorts of other questions about the history of modern Egypt were posed. And it just so happened that I started graduate school in 2007 as the financial crisis was getting going. And so it became particularly easy in that moment to start seeing how dramatic and significant the transformations in new forms of financialization, the creation of new financial markets, banking institutions, forms of credit that were taking place under British rule actually were. And so where the project really kind of took off was in trying to think about what it would actually look like to think about a history of finance and a history of ecological transformation together, or what it would mean to write an environmental history of financialization. And so in a sense, a lot of what particularly the early chapters of the book is, are trying to do is to kind of build a history of capital around the story that we already know about cotton. That in particular entails making sense of the ways in which Egypt, in a moment of really dramatic worldwide financial expansion that took off in the 1870s and 1880s, Egypt became a kind of crucial laboratory and target for, for financial investment in ways that radically transformed both the livelihoods of people of all different social classes in both the countryside and in cities, and which had quite dramatic implications for the kinds of natures that were being produced by and for capital in Egypt. So so those were the kind of big methodological moves that at least framed the inquiry as I started the research. Thanks, Aaron. So you mentioned the problem of this really narrow idea of the history of capitalism that we have. And early on in the book, you describe the colonial vision of the Egyptian falah as a quote-unquote petty agrarian capitalist in waiting. So can you tell us about what this vision meant for the British approach to colonial agrarian administration and especially to this idea of Egypt as a laboratory? How was the idea of Egyptian peasants as fundamentally materialist part of the broader ideology of colonial economism that you're unpicking in the book? Okay, this is another great question. And to answer it, I should signal something about what this focus on the question of smallholders means in relation to the way histories of modern Egypt have commonly been written. So there's an overwhelming emphasis in most of the literature that we have on the power of the large landholding class as this kind of defining feature of both economic life and of politics in Egypt, basically from the beginning of the 19th century, at least into the 50s, when the free officers revolt took place. And we can understand this emphasis in the historiography that we have as an expression of a set of really urgent intellectual and political concerns that were motivating the research of scholars, both in Egypt and in other parts of the world when they were doing their research. And so it's easy to see how and why a focus on large landholders on big plantations worked by landless peasants and wage laborers could come to stand as the representation of what agrarian capitalism looks like in Egypt. So part of what then happens is that because that is in fact what much of the countryside did look like by the middle of the 20th century, many of the histories that we have of this period end up kind of projecting that outcome backward through time as the consequence of a kind of clear and deliberate set of colonial designs. 
And what happens when you go into the archives and start looking around is that that narrative turns out to be pretty dramatic at odds with the things that the British both were saying about what they wanted to do in Egypt and with the kinds of policies that they were implementing. So to answer your question more specifically, there was both an imperial context and an Egyptian context to the way that the occupation alighted upon the smallholding peasant as the ideal subject of colonial reform. So in broad brushstrokes in the British Empire, if we think about colonial rule, particularly in, in India, as being engaged in a long-term project of aggressive reforms to alter agrarian society that had at least initially been premised on the idea that colonial rule could be the vector for a set of universal ideals and practices that had been blocked in one way or another by so-called oriental despotism. There's a kind of early liberal universalist moment of colonial rule in India that by the middle of the 19th century was coming under increasing strain because things hadn't been working out the way that they had expected them to. So most dramatically, the revolt of 1857 suggested that Indians as colonial subjects were not nearly so amenable to British rule as they had long thought that they were. And this generated all sorts of skepticism about the capacities of colonial subjects in South Asia to become self-governing liberal subjects. And with that worry about colonial insurgency and particularly agrarian insurgency came a set of concerns about the ways in which the transformative effects of new kinds of law, new kinds of interconnections to, to global markets, uh, new kinds of credit institutions were tearing apart the fabric of agrarian society in ways that could actually prove dangerous. And so by the end of the 19th century, you have a quite high stakes debate among colonial administrators about sort of which aspects of the liberal project of reform were actually universal and should continue to be implemented by colonial governments and which ones were not. And so the British arrive in Egypt at a moment in which this debate is taking place. And the situation that they find kind of tilts the balance toward one set of answers. So they need an explanation for how it is both that the country has gone bankrupt and that as a result of the austerity measures imposed by the European bondholders, the country has erupted into the uprising of the Arabi revolt. And the answer that they arrive at is basically that the regime that has existed has misused the institutions of the modern state toward narrowly self-interested ends, that this is a kind of classic instance of colonial, of oriental despotism, and that the bankruptcy that has occurred is actually the result of the greedy, predacious nature of the Khedivit and its large landholding retainers who have basically misused the institutions of the state to enrich themselves at the expense of the rest of the country. And so the idea of the British is that, in fact, the enormous productive capacity of the country has been blocked by the predaciousness of the large landholding class. And so their idea, broadly speaking, they will be able both to resolve the problem of payments on Egypt's foreign debts and to create an overwhelming majority of contented colonial subjects by focusing on a set of agricultural policies that would unleash the previously untapped productive capacities of Egypt's smallholding peasant majority. And that set of ideas, which informed most of the crucial policies that they adopted in the 1880s and 90s, 
was premised on a very particular understanding of what the Egyptian smallholder was like as as a racialized human subject. So on the one hand, contrary to a growing cohort of conservative colonial administrators in India who had started to think that it was dangerous to assume that that peasants anywhere possessed any kind of economic rationality, the notion that these smallholders could participate in a project of economic regeneration relied on the notion that they possessed a sufficient economic rationality to act upon their own interests in ways that would cause them to produce more crops and more cotton in particular, if supplied with adequate water, if granted secure title to land, if given adequate sources of credit. So on the one hand, there's a kind of strong emphasis on the economic rationality of peasants, on their orientation toward material interest, and on their their ability to kind of participate in the basic transactions of a modern agrarian capitalist society. On the other hand, this set of claims about their economic subjectivity is kind of matched by a notion that they are narrowly responsive to economic interests and that real politics actually requires a capacity to overcome individualistic self-interest. And so on this basis, the British simultaneously suggest both that smallholders should be systematically excluded, or not just smallholders, that basically ordinary Egyptians in all walks of life should be systematically excluded from the limited avenues of political participation that existed when they arrived. And they claimed that over time, the project of economic development that they were implementing would basically cause any opposition to, to British rule to recede as economic outcomes improved. So it's that notion that one could kind of build a project of government around a notion of a population of racialized subjects narrowly oriented toward material interest that I refer to as colonial economism in the book. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's an incredible outline of the broad stroke arguments of the book. I'm wondering if we can kind of go a little bit deeper, specifically around this idea of colonial production of the falah or these peasants as a racialized category so that they can be positioned in a comparative framework with other colonial subjects. But one thing that I'm curious about, which you also mentioned in the book, is the construction of the Aswan Lodam in 1902, which, as I'm sure many of us know, began the process of mass displacement and dispossession of the Nubian population in southern Egypt when their ancestral lands were completely submerged, lands to which they are still demanding a right to return more than a 100 years later from the Egyptian state. And this demand has been met by fierce opposition, imprisonment, and deaths of Nubian activists like Gamal Surur. Given what happened in 1902, I was wondering how within this larger category of the Egyptian falah, agroecological experiments were being implemented on different groups. So the first thing to say, this is just an acknowledgement that no book can cover everything, is that the dam and its various implications receive pretty cursory treatment in the book. So to the extent that it's really mentioned at all, it's there as part of a list of developments that occurred in the early 1900s that together contributed to global perceptions of Egypt as an incredibly appealing place for foreign investors to place their capital. And so much of what I know beyond that, I've learned from the work of other scholars like Turjit Svete, Jen Durr, Zainab Abulmegd. But in ways I've touched on at least a little bit, the end of an article I published a few years ago called Boom Bugs Bust, I think that it can be helpful to consider Egypt's version of a Southern question in terms of 
what the historical geographer Jason Moore calls the production of cheap natures. So the issue here is that if we think about the ways in which capital never wants to pay its own way, and that sense forms of capitalist enterprise need to be concerned with keeping down not just the cost of labor, but the costs of production in general, that what we start to see, particularly when we kind of think about capital relations as relations in space and in nature, is a whole series of connected processes that involve cheapening livelihoods and environments in order to ensure that the costs of production somewhere else are kept as low as possible. So in this sense, to the extent that much of the ecology of what becomes the nation state of Egypt was being subordinated to processes of producing cotton for export, it was immensely important that all of the various inputs to the production of cotton itself be kept as low as possible. And of course, one of the problems of growing cotton is that it demands huge quantities of water, and particularly water at times of the year when it was not historically available prior to the advent of, of perennial irrigation. And so, you know, in ways that actually, I think, become even more dramatic as we move into the 20th century, we might think about the relations between populations and spaces in the northern part of the country, which are kind of privileged as the domain of cotton production to subordinated populations and regions in the South as being premised at least partly on ensuring that the cheapening and in fact, destruction of certain ecologies in the South could be made to subsidize the production of cotton in the North. So in this sense, more concretely, you basically have a situation where whole communities are being wiped out and their lands flooded to ensure that there is a reliable supply of water that can be managed and controlled to ensure the largest possible cotton crop during the year. And as is true of projects of colonial rule more broadly, those projects of what might be described as internal colonization were themselves often premised upon and arranged around racialized discourses of exclusion. You are listening to the Environment and Context series on Status Al-Wada. This is Huma Gupta. My guest host today is Camille Cole. And we are speaking with Aaron Jakes about his book, Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism, and the Crises of Capitalism. So I want to just change tacks a little bit and move from talking about irrigation and water to talking about another kind of incident that you talk about, which is the cottonworm infestations of the early 20th century. So I found it really striking that colonial administrators responded to these infestations by abandoning their sort of previous opposition, with which they had touted, to forced labor and requiring the conscription of children to pick worms off cotton plants. And then even more than that, that Egyptian nationalists framed this revival of peasant conscription in the sort of war on the worms as part of the collective Egyptian struggle for freedom. Can you talk about how the colonial regime and Egyptian nationalists understood the relationship between the social and ecological and why we end up with these endorsements of child labor? 
Sure. So the answer, this is a, a two-part question, and the answers are a little bit different. So I'll, I'll start with the colonial side of things. And this, this is really actually where the whole project started. So I, many years ago, found a set of records about these campaigns to conscript children to pick caterpillars off of cotton plants and knew the occupation had recently abolished corvée. And so this seemed strange, and I was trying to make sense of it. And I think a key thing to bear in mind here is that racialization in this context wasn't just a way of justifying relations of exploitation and domination after the fact. It was central to how colonial administrators made sense of the world, and it was consequently engineered into the policies that they crafted and the social ecologies that they helped to produce. So what this meant in practice was that when colonial administrators in Egypt or India described their policies as experiments, what they often, though not always, meant was that the results would provide data specifically about the nature of the differences that differentiated so-called subject races from both white Europeans and from each other. So what does this have to do with caterpillars? I've explained earlier that in many ways, the kind of vision of colonial reform that the British were pushing from the early 1880s onwards was one in which they wanted smallholders to produce as much cotton as they possibly could on their land. So the colonial estate itself was banking on the notion that when given the opportunity, smallholders would grow a whole lot of cotton, but also that they would do so in an economically rational way. And what starts to happen by the early 1900s is that the continuous intensification of cotton cultivation starts to create problems that actually lead to declining yields. So the bugs aren't the only problem. There's also a rising water table. There's rising soil salinity. Uh, you have problems with seed strains. But what they start to notice is that the insect problems are connected to the kind of density of cotton plants on the land. And they see that poorer farmers have a tendency to grow more cotton more frequently per fedan than their wealthier neighbors. There are, in fact, many different ways of explaining this. And in both the book and the article that I referred to earlier, I've tried to explain this as a manifestation in the landscape of the way in which credit markets were striated by class. So wealthier people tended to borrow money at much lower interest rates than poor farmers did and were therefore under much different pressures to generate profits out of the soil. But the colonial state ends up reading a set of outcomes in which it looks like peasants are bad ecological actors as an indication that they have basically misjudged the economic rationality of the peasants and that in fact they are short-sighted, overly greedy, not sufficiently rational to kind of think beyond the nearest horizons of their own material interests and that they therefore need to be disciplined and coerced into acting on their own self-interest. And so it's really on the basis of a kind of altered description of the peasant, which is often mobilized as the kind of alarming result of an experiment gone wrong, that the British justify these plans to conscript huge numbers of children, which are like deeply alarming in all sorts of ways. So in the early years that they do this, there's some suggestion that they need to be moving children around from one region of the Delta to another, and no one had bothered to think about the fact that the children would need to be fed. So these policies are pretty upsetting. But in any event, the explanation that's given by the colonial state leans very heavily on this notion that their experiments have yielded new results that have allowed them to kind of reassess the economic rationality of the peasants. For the nationalists, and I'll try to be a bit quicker about this, 
One version of things, the version that we have encountered in a lot of work that already exists, would say that this isn't actually hard to explain. So if we understand nationalism simply as the project of an aspiring elite, many of them with some ties to the countryside, to basically take over the state apparatus that the British had built for them, then there's no reason to be surprised because one could assume that maybe this is simply in their own interests and that they have no particular critique of the way social relations and production are organized in Egypt. The problem there is that if you actually start to pay attention to the very rich and quite sophisticated body of writings that those same nationalists were producing to articulate their critiques of colonial rule, an analysis of what capitalism in Egypt actually looked like was quite central to their understanding of the problem of colonial rule. So many of them had interesting and compelling critiques of Egypt's dependency on cotton production that look logically quite a bit like versions of dependency theory or world systems analysis that we're familiar with from later in the 20th century. The issue is that particularly in the wake of this devastating financial crisis that happens in 1907, the ways in which Egypt had been subjected to forms of financial volatility that were radically disruptive for livelihoods all across the country became the kind of foremost concern that animated that critique. And so they begin to think that the accumulation of pools of national capital that are not controlled by people outside of Egypt's borders would be central to a project of economic liberation without which political control over the institutions of the state would be meaningless. And so what starts to happen, particularly by the early 19-teens, is that there is a kind of nationalist affirmation of cotton cultivation, not as the kind of endless desirable end or set of economic arrangements to which the country should aspire. So in other words, many of these people also are beginning to think about the need for economic diversification, about the importance of industrialization, but they basically think that the route to getting there leads necessarily through the cultivation of more cotton. And so they start to construe the capturing of wealth produced through the cotton crop as a kind of necessary national project in which all Egyptians need to participate in order ultimately to liberate the country from the domination of foreign capital. And so in quite dramatic ways, these coercive projects of conscripting children to pick caterpillars off of cotton crops often get kind of refigured, often in martial language, as part of a kind of national obligation or a fight against nature that will eventually at some point in the future provide the means for the country to be really free. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for really kind of tackling some of these hard questions that we're asking of you to to kind of like explain these larger processes and specifically how they're happening in Egypt. There's one other aspect of your argument that really captured my imagination, which was the ways in which you're building upon and also setting yourself apart from the great scholarship that Timothy Mitchell has already done on thinking about abstract categories of economic analysis, abstract categories of measuring value and productivity, you know, notably his work on GDP, national income. And I think that body of scholarship has been useful to us because it allows us to think about the ways in which these abstractions have traveled between different colonial and post-colonial geographies. 
So I'm thinking about chapter seven, which is beautifully titled Punjab on the Nile. And I'm very interested in this chapter because I am Punjabi. And I'm also really interested in these actors that you're talking about who belong to the Punjab school of British administration. And I'm curious if you can talk about first how your work builds upon like Timothy Mitchell's claim about how these abstract categories are producing the economic sphere as this isolated sphere that can be managed and measured. But how does your idea of economism help us also think about these various ways in which colonial economism are traveling between and from places like India and Egypt? That's a great question. So the first thing to say in response to the part of the question about Timothy Mitchell's work is that I think the observation that the economy is a produced abstraction around which political projects are organized has become all the more compelling and important in a moment in which, at least in the United States, we're living under a government that actually seems quite eager to sacrifice human life to its own version of that abstraction. Where I differ somewhat from Mitchell is that I think we we need to make a distinction between the economy, as he describes it, in other words, a particular abstraction that is about counting economic transactions within a bounded geographic space in a particular way that can then be operationalized for certain kinds of politics in the 20th century, and the economic, in other words, a name for a discrete domain of social existence that is separate from, say, politics. And that distinction actually emerges long before the economy. And as I understand it, it's really an expression of the possibility of thinking about the economic as a domain of social life that is governed by a particular set of abstract law-like movements that the discourse of political economy, when it begins to emerge really in the 18th century, is trying to grapple with. And this is something I explain at considerable length in the introduction to the book. That the thing to bear in mind here is that once it becomes possible to think about the economic as separate from other domains of social life, so right, you could have economic development as something distinct from political development, that this then raises all sorts of questions about how we understand the relationship between different domains. And so what I'm calling colonial economism in the book is kind of one possible answer to that problem that starts to emerge really clearly in the work of John Stuart Mill, and that Lord Cromer, who is the consul general who is effectively in charge of the occupation in Egypt from 1883 to 1907, Cromer kind of develops this form of colonial economism as central to, to his understanding of colonial rule. Now, central to that version of things is an idea that Egyptians or that certain colonial subjects possess a sufficient economic rationality for the dictates of liberal political economy to hold true in a place like Egypt. And it's that idea that really differentiates them from the kinds of arguments that are being made in the Punjab from, again, the 1870s and 1880s onward. So there you have a conservative school of colonial administrators who have basically become convinced that peasants in India are not sufficiently 
rational economically to be trusted, for example, with credit as a form of foreign capital. So the worry there is that if credit relations in the countryside intensify, you're not going to have farmers that are using credit to invest in soil improvements or purchase livestock and machinery or purchase better seeds for their land, that instead they're going to simply waste it on weddings for their daughters or buying jewelry and burying it in the ground or all practices that colonial administrators would denounce. And so what happens in the Punjab, by contrast, is a push for a kind of protectionist legislation that will actually insulate certain populations from the transactions of modern commercial society by kind of hiving them off behind certain kinds of laws. So the, the most dramatic example of that's relevant to the story I'm telling is something called the Punjab Alienation of Land Act passed in 1900 and makes it illegal for land to be alienated between groups of people that are designated agricultural classes and groups of people that are not. And so the concern there is that moneylenders are basically going to rapaciously ensnare peasants in webs of debt that will gradually cause land to be transferred away from the real agricultural classes to these money lending castes. And what starts to happen in Egypt in the aftermath of the financial crisis that I mentioned, where initially the British basically claim that this is just a problem of stock market speculators who have engaged in some kind of risky, dangerous forms of leverage, but won't have any effect on the country as a whole. That analysis turns out to be wrong. So by 1910, they're forced to admit that what has happened is that the whole network of credit in the country has been so thoroughly thrown out of whack by this crisis that peasant smallholders have been going bankrupt in huge numbers. So like tens of thousands of, of people are being foreclosed on. And so... Again, there are other ways of explaining why this happens. And in the chapter of the book that you're referring to, I look at some archival materials from an insurance company that was making mortgages to very wealthy landlords to show that, in fact, the wealthy landlords are doing many of the same kinds of things to evade payment on their loans when things start going south, as the smallholders are doing. But the banks with which they're dealing are willing to afford them varieties of accommodation to which the smallholders don't have access. And so faced with a situation in which they're trying not to lose their land, many of those smallholders basically stop making payment on their loans on the understanding that the courts are so jammed up with cases that it will take months or years for them to foreclose and you know hopefully things will work out in the future. So that's kind of my explanation of what's happening, but the colonial state again relying on this kind of racialized experimental logic decides instead that the fact of these defaults and the ways in which peasants are kind of taking advantage of problems in the court system to not pay their debts are an indication that their earlier optimism about the economic rationality of peasants and their ability in particular to deal responsibly with credit were erroneous. And so it's at that moment that they kind of reach back to India and start leaning on this set of policies and ideas that had really most thoroughly been elaborated in the Punjab. And so the analogous piece of legislation to the Punjab Alienation of Land Act is something called the Five Fidan Law, which is actually part of a program to make it easier for the banks to foreclose more quickly on existing bad debts, but is kind of counteracted by a set of new rules that will make it illegal 
for anyone to foreclose on a property of five fidens or less for debt in the future. And the effect of that, as they understand it, is to basically make it impossible for the farmers owning the smallest properties to mortgage their land. And so it effectively cuts them off from access to credit against land and in ways that the colonial state does not really anticipate, but the nationalists and lots of other people anticipate actually just ends up kind of forcing the poorest farmers in the country back into a situation where they have to rely on forms of money lending at much, much higher rates of interest that actually make things all the more difficult for them. Thanks, Aaron. This is such a rich analysis, but also kind of depressing because it's so familiar in so many ways, I think, to our experiences of the economy today. It seemed really important to us in thinking about the book, this kind of economization or the economized view of social and ecological relationships that is sort of created during the colonial regime, but that the anti-colonial critique preserved in many ways, and maybe it was forced to preserve it by the, you know, by the conditions of the world around it. It seems that the obsession with productivity and the encroachment of the economy into all reaches of our lives has, has only intensified over the last century. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of bring us out of the book and talk to us about how we might reimagine how we relate to each other and to the world around us in a non-economistic way. How can we use this history to craft a radical environmental imagination going forward? Okay, Uh, that's a heck of a question. It is both deeply comforting since it suggests to me that you see some of the ways in which I was hoping the historical content of the book might point back into the present. And it's also a daunting question because it's big. So the the general answer and the, the kind of largest argument of the book is that economism isn't just either an error of vulgar Marxist thought in particular or of social analysis in general. It's a direct expression of the particular way in which problems of freedom, of human freedom, are posed within capitalist societies. And part of what I'm trying to grapple with at the end of the book is that as I read them, many of the nationalist thinkers that I'm looking at actually understand this. They have a variety of different ways of expressing it, but it's really striking that when they're talking about the ways in which Egypt has been subjected to something they call the material occupation, they're not just worried about the fact that they're growing cotton instead of building factories. They're actually thinking about the ways in which Egypt's relation to circuits and flows of capital globally represents a set of constraints on what freedom and independence might actually mean. And so stretching that idea into the present Part of what those thinkers are grappling with is the way in which the kind of deepening entanglement of people's everyday lives with forms of abstract interdependency that mean that the conditions that allow them to do all the things that they need to do to be alive and support themselves and their families are entangled with and interconnected with the choices and practices and behaviors of people in lots of other places as well. And so they are thinking among other things, about how some of those forms of reliance on market dependence, for example, could be rolled back so that people could make decisions about what kind of society they want to build on other bases. And, you know, where 
the project of nationalism kind of heads in a less radical direction than it might is that they start to see many of these problems not as problems of capitalism in general, but of the kind of particularly distorting effects of colonial rule. They basically end up having a kind of faith in the idea that national capital will somehow work differently than foreign capital. Now, where all of this relates to the present is, I think, in a sense, the the pandemic has made this easier to think about. We're dealing with a situation in which the subjection of more and more aspects of people's lives to the movements and dictates of market dependence have made it all the more difficult for people to make choices in their lives for all the other reasons that they care about. Right. And this has been staged quite dramatically over the last couple of months in terms of this kind of conflict between the desire to keep people safe from the contagion of the pandemic and the need to revive the economy. And so I guess on the one hand, as we're talking, we're actually living through a moment where revolutionary possibilities are more alive and well in this country than they have ever been in my lifetime. But even in a kind of less revolutionary register, I think that we can consider some of what's been going on on the left of politics in the United States recently as a set of efforts to kind of rescue areas of people's lives from such extreme forms of market dependence that they are forced to behave in economistic ways. So I'll give an example that's kind of dear to my heart, and it was not particularly well foregrounded, I think, in the way the campaign was run. But the sections of the Bernie Sanders campaign about the student debt policies really emphasize the ways in which the ridiculous degree of student debt with which large numbers of young people in this country kind of begin their movement through the workforce imposes incredible constraints on the choices they can make about the kinds of lives that they want to live. And if we lived in a country where higher education were provided as a universal public good and did not require the accumulation of those kinds of debts, all of those people would be that much more free to make different kinds of choices about the kinds of lives that they want to live. That's also true of all sorts of things about how relations to the environment, choices about how we address climate change, questions about how our food system is put together are currently arranged. And so I think we can think about a kind of anti-economistic politics that looks at ways of either altering the ways in which people are dependent on economic imperatives or insulated from them to make other kinds of choices about what the world they live in ought to look like. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you for actually thinking with us through these very large and important questions in this revolutionary moment, as you said. I think our generation is grappling with the irony that it's precisely this economized view of the environment that has produced the biological and material conditions that we are facing today with the pandemic and with perhaps the greater pandemics of racism and classism and capitalism. But more importantly, that even our responses to these biological and material conditions, even the most well-intentioned ones that deal with climate change adaptation, even the New Green Deal, are still reinscribed within this economized view of the environment. And I'm not sure how we're going to think our way out of this and act in a way that we can escape. But I think 
reading your book, thinking about these things, being reflective about it might help us continue this project of radical imagination. I just want to thank you once again, Erin, and my brilliant co-host Camille Cole for this wonderful conversation. Aaron Jakes is the author of Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism, and the Crises of Capitalism, and we reached him today in New York City. His book is published by Stanford University Press and will be available in August. If you have thoughts about programming or if you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at jadalia.com. Thank you for listening and until next time. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com dot com.